mother say? What will Joseph think? <laughs> She's about to leave her parents' home to go to Joseph's home, but now how will she survive the scandal, let alone the childbirth? Despite the questions probably gathering her mind to Gabriel, she says this. She says, let it be. To God's messenger, she says, yes. This story is so far familiar, and it's so familiar that it no longer astonishes us. Uh, which is the point of view that I kept reading this from, is the little ways in which the gospel message should be totally astonishing. Uh, should take us off guard because we're so used to walking outside of these walls and let the normal operation of day-to-day things just take over. And we don't see how the gospel is still something that should take over all of our lives. The way that we see everything, the way we move from everything and operate from everything. This is a radical transformation. Um, so let us hear this with ears that may still astonish us. Because we should applaud Mary's heroism. Mary says yes to Gabriel and it's very costly. She says yes to a scandalous pregnancy, to the possibility of death by stoning. But the cost will not end there. She delivers a baby lays him in a feeding trough, and when her son grows up, people will say that he is out of his mind, possessed by the devil, hanging out with the wrong people, a troublemaker. He will suffer torture and death, and Mary will have to watch and be helpless to prevent. Writing from prison before his execution by the Nazis, Diedrich Bonhoeffer said this, there remains an experience of incomparable value we have for once learnt to see the great events of history from below, from the perspective of the outcasts, the suspects, the maltreated, the powerless. In short, from the perspective of those who suffer. The story of Mary and of Jesus can teach us to see history from below. She is courageous, but she needs support. I think for this very reason, the Gabriel, the angel, said this to her. Elizabeth is also pregnant. It's one of those lines that most of the time when we're reading this story, we just kind of glance over and skip. Most of the time, pastors even skip it because it's a little, little note. But yet in this meeting, this meeting between two women in a land under brutal occupation learn that they are pregnant. One is unmarried and knows that bearing a child will expose her to rejection and judgment and perhaps even violence. From her own community. The other has been childless for years and has probably been shamed and scorned because of it. Though this child will welcome nothing can wipe out those years of anguish and neither child will survive long enough to care for their parents in their old age. Something each of them I wonder if after both John and Jesus have died come together again. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is born amidst this um, amazing moment. And Luke is so subtle to acknowledge that Elizabeth, Elizabeth is actually the first prophet announcing that, hey, Mary, the Savior you were bearing. First one to make that. It's no wonder that Luke has these little incidences with women all throughout um, this moment. And yet, in this moment of trepidation in which they hold this tension between joy and sadness, it's no wonder that this reading is on the third Sunday of Advent. Third Sunday of Advent, you'll notice we transition from the wonderful purple to pink. 
Uh, it's usually known as Gaudete Sunday. Um, not gaudy, that's the way we decorate, right? So <laughs> Gaudete, G-A-U-D-E-T-E, is, uh, is, is, the, is actually the Latin word for the first part of the prayer that announces for this Sunday. And it's always meant to have joy. And interesting enough, the suggested readings always for this Sunday are, are always either the meeting of Mary and Elizabeth or John the Baptist in the wilderness having that wonderful Christmas card moment in which he says, welcome you brood of vipers, right? Everyone's received at least one card this Christmas, right? With one of those? No, just me? So, that's, that will be my favorite design. So, <laughs> so. Um, But here's this moment of joy and happiness. Um, Henry Nouwen described the difference between this. Happiness is dependent on external conditions, but joy? Joy is the experience of knowing that you are unconditionally loved and that nothing, nothing, no sickness, failure, emotional distress, oppression, war, or even death can take that away. Thus, joy can be present even in the midst of sadness. And I believe that's what both of these women in this encounter are holding. In the moment they recognize what the other is bringing, both joy and sadness. They believe that the children they carried would bring a new future. Elizabeth pronounces Mary blessed, which was just the kind of encouragement she needed to break into song. Her song is called the Magnificat. Um, because that's the first word in Latin. Um, literal translation is, my soul magnifies the Lord. Um, as we heard, kind of a, a, a paraphrase of that earlier, that the choir lifted up so wonderfully. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And Mary sings. And I wonder if that moment, she also dances a little bit. Because, you know, when you break out in song, you have to break out in a little movement. Um, there's a video that went viral last year um, about a little girl. Um, you can still find it on YouTube and TikTok uh, about a little girl that she seemed to have a little lonely moment because she's standing, she's four years old, she's standing on a couch and she is, um, she's awaiting the mailman. And, uh, and every time the mailman appears, if you can't read the caption, you say she knows she has a friend coming. And, uh, friends echo her face shown up in the TV. That's Ian, the mailman. And every day, as soon as the mailman approaches, she dances from the couch. I follow you into the park, through the jungle, and through the park. And I never love one like you. And together they have this Boats and boats and waterfalls, alleyways and pitfall calls. I'll be here never until we think we'll die barefoot on a summer night nothing new is sweeter than with you and in the street we run a free like it's only you and me jeez got something to see oh 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 she imitates his you can find a longer video on YouTube in which neighbors would actually film it from the street and her from the, and the little girl from the window as well. Um, it's just a small moment. It's a small moment, but yet that little bit of joy extended out to the whole neighborhood. Uh, you know, it just takes a little bit of courage to dance and suddenly break out. And yet, 
when I first watched this video, my thought went to this. Um, um, it went to the mailman. Um, this very small act, I wonder what we don't see. I wonder what the mailman struggled with personally. What stresses he was carrying until he finally saw someone dancing in the window. To, and then he decided to break out himself and dance back. So Mary sang, maybe she danced too. She was joyfully courageous with her song of yearning and hope and peace and justice. She sings of a God who enters our world from below, not of one who comes down from above in a way of force and power, but is subtle and discreet and yet just as much glorious. It's a song of revolution with on the lips of a peasant girl. If it wasn't so familiar to us, it might still astound us. Um, Here's some of the lines from verse 51 to 55. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and set the rich empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. According to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. The Magnificat was powerful in its role reversal of seeing this is the way that God will eventually turn the whole world on its head. From the power structures that we know that kind of weigh us down and burden us, that God is calling to reversal that, yeah, is something that we still can't grasp how astonishing that is today. It was so astonishing, interesting enough, and here's a little um, kind of uh, trivia for you. When Martin Luther translated the Bible into German, this is the only section of the Bible he did not translate to German. Uh, fact, he left it in Latin. Would you like to know why? Because he felt that Mary's song was so powerful that he might lose the support of his benefactors. You see, the German princes who supported and protected Luther in his struggles took a dim view of the social and political implications of the Magnificat with its reversal of social structures. And not wanting to lose his uh, friends in high places, Luther thought it best to leave the Magnificat in Latin so the regular folks around Germany would not, well, get the power of this. And suddenly my view of Martin going, wait, you could tack up the 95 Theses, but you couldn't translate this? Wow. The Magnificat in Luke is not one, you know, that is supporting violence, rich versus poor. What it's saying is, um, well, think of it like the rich young ruler, or Zacchaeus. It reflects Jesus' very ministry in which he would go to those that were downtrodden and lift them up. And for those who thought themselves high and mighty over everyone else, he said, uh-uh, down here where the people are. And he constantly went that, depending upon where you were. Some needed helping up, some needed being brought down. To say all of us together. The Magnificat was so powerful throughout the Middle Ages, it sparked a festival. In fact, we, it was so powerful that it took hundreds of years for those who were higher up to suppress this festival. It's no longer celebrated today. It's called the Festival of the Feast of Fools. Um, start in France and, and move out quickly through the known liturgical world. Uh, interesting enough, there are several pictures of this. This is the only polite one that I could, that I could find to put in church, though. So, <laughs> um, here's what had happened at the Feast of Fools. It would start around December the 15th. 
and it was like a mini Mardi Gras that would happen, and a lot of role reversals. Uh, people would dress up as animals. The clergy would cross-dress. Uh, vestments were worn inside out. Uh, people would blow ashes on each other as they and came in the church. They would elect a false preacher and a false pope, um, typically being, you know, kind of the, the town fool would play it. Um, and then they would mimic or make fun of the preachers and the pope and, and you name it. It was this kind of week-and-a-half-long festival of um, absurdity, uh, of making fun of those in political power and social power. And then letting them know that this is the way that God comes, is a way of role reversal. Uh, the Magnificent has been used time and time again for those, you know, mostly in the rural country outcasts who suffered under political oppression. Uh, one of the more famous ones was in Nicaragua when Ernesto Cardinal was coming forth and he says, look, this is so powerful because it teaches us a lesson that it will liberate us and also liberate them those row reversals. Perhaps it looks a little bit like this. Uh, many years ago in Christianity um, um, Today, there was an article from a pastor who was there when the Berlin Wall fell. And he wrote an article about his experience and him hanging around. He said, in Berlin in 1989, when the wall came down just a few months prior, here's what was going on at St. Nikolai Church in Leipzig. It's a place where, well, give you a, another little tidbit of history where Bach composed so many of his cantatas. Uh, and the people gathered there at that church in Nikolai to begin to pray and sing. And it started the gathering of more and more and more until suddenly 70,000 people gathered around, spilling out into the streets with candles everywhere, praying and singing. And this pastor wondered as he could hear it beyond the wall, that after the wall came down, he asked some people, hey, how come, how come this one wasn't suppressed like, and crushed like so many before? And the people surrounding that church that had been singing told the pastor there. Their answer came that the police had no contingency plan for song and prayer, no countermeasures against praying and singing. And it may sound strange, it may sound odd, but yet the power in the voice and the prayers and them putting up, this is what the gospel is meant to be. Not for something for the hereafter, but for the here and now. And for Luke, the gospel writer, as we picked up so often through Advent, is preparing us for this Christmas celebration. It's as if Luke is warning this loud and clear. He warns, look, do not kneel. And worship this baby unless you're ready to embrace the vision of the whole world remade in the image of God. Do not come and adore him unless you're ready to have your life and your world and everything you hold dear turned upside down and shaken and reshaped in a world where justice and truth and reckless hospitality reign. Do not come with your gifts to honor this newborn king unless you're ready to be caught up in the wind of God's spirit and blown who knows where? You might think that song and prayer are still too small for the weight of the worries we carry. Um, it's one of the things I lifted up this past Thursday at the open door. We had our blue Christmas service. As, uh, uh, and during that, it's that reminder that all of us occasionally during this time have that moment of glimpse in which sometimes the weight of the world catches us. Maybe it catches us with who's no longer here. 
Uh, maybe it catches us with expectations that are not realized. Maybe it catches us with just a sadness we cannot identify, or a stress of trying to make everything right, <laughs> and knowing that God came in the midst of the stable in which everything was wrong, and yet it was so right. We might think that the few of us who come together to sing and pray each week are a small thing in the face of the worries we carry, the fear and the stress, or we might join Mary's song. It's a song that's been sung for generations in many different ways. It was and still is heard when the monastics sing Ubi Caritas, where there is love, there is God. It's heard every summer when campers gather around the bonfire and still sing Kumbaya, right? And when children or protesters sing this little light of mine. When they sang Verdi's Requiem in the concentration camps, or Odes of Joy in Chile during the Pinochet dictatorship, when Sweet Honey in the Rock sings, who, We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. That's Mary's song, sung to a different tune. When Christians all around the world sing joy to the world every Christmas, we're singing Mary's song all over again. Each generation must find its own tune and time, including us. We almost fi must find the way to sing Mary's song, that God is begotten here and now, not just in our midst, but in us. It's the melody of faith rising yet again, offering defiant and courageous hope to a weary world. And that's something that I can proclaim as good news, not just to me, but to all of us. Thanks be to God. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father, plant within us the seed of your servant's song, so we may look around to the things that are weighing us down the things that we might think that are controlling this or that or whatever else all around us and say no longer and know that you are the one who reigns in us and through us and among us, that we might sing your song and dance to your tune until finally others join in us and dance as well. This we hope and pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
to see you.